0: tell us something about um, Jesus's ministry, particularly when it comes to location and geography and where he's going to make his basis of operation. So, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From the t- that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like I said, this may not be a passage that really seems that significant because it really just talks about places. But here's what's interesting to me. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13, Jesus leaves his hometown of Nazareth. He is no longer going to operate out of Nazareth. Now, two weeks ago was our last study together prior to Thanksgiving. And what, what happened at Nazareth? In that study. What happened to Jesus when he last went to Nazareth? He wasn't respected. They completely rejected him. They wanted, what was that brother Gene? They tried to kill him. He went home and they tried to kill him. So he has no reason to go back to Nazareth anymore. In fact, we never read in the Gospels of him returning to Nazareth ever again. And so it's interesting to me, I I place that study, even though chronologically in Matthew, the rejection at Nazareth doesn't happen before this statement in chapter 4. I I do that study of the Nazareth rejection before we study this Capernaum situation because I, I think it may have happened first. Luke records it very early in Jesus' ministry. And I think that gives us an understanding of why he chose to go to Capernaum. Is because Nazareth rejected him. And so tonight what I want to do is take a moment to consider um, why he's going to Capernaum, or, or, or why Matthew even makes a statement. Also, a few of the key events that happened in the early stages of his time in Capernaum. So I call this the Capernaum... Uh, base because that become, this town becomes the base of his operation. It becomes his almost starting point for his ministry. So according to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13, Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. If you were to skip ahead to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, there's a little interesting statement there. It says that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and came to his own city. It's a reference to Capernaum, and in Matthew chapter nine and verse one, Capernaum is identified as Jesus's own city. There, that seems to indicate that this is this is this is where he lived from then on, or at least when he wasn't out on his uh, min, doing his ministry, teaching and preaching and traveling around. It seems to be his basis of operation. Now. Like I said, I think the choice of going to Capernaum is in part a direct result of his rejection at Nazareth. But it's also interesting, uh, an interesting choice for other reasons. At least three of Jesus' disciples were from Capernaum. Peter and Andrew, they were originally from Bethsaida. We, we find that out in John chapter 1, and verse 44. But they had apparently moved to Capernaum because they owned a house there. At least that's what Mark chapter 1 and verse 29 tells us, that Simon, Peter, has a house, and uh, and we're also told that Andrew resided with Simon. Um, So we know those two lived in Capernaum. It's quite likely that James and John lived in Capernaum, but we don't have that explicitly stated in Scripture. But the reason it's quite likely is because they were business partners with Andrew and Simon. The other disciple that we, we know came from Capernaum is a guy named Matthew, who's also known as Levi. It's because he had a tax office in Capernaum. Eventually we'll study that, but you can read about it in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. And so Matthew's relationship to Capernaum may be the reason that of all the gospel writers, he's the only one that explicitly tells us that Jesus made Capernaum his home. And so, it, it, Jesus has some deep connections to Capernaum through his disciples. The name Capernaum means the village of Nahum. And as has already been mentioned in the reading, Capernaum... Must I wrong? The name Capernaum means the village of Nahum, and it might have been the home of that Old Testament prophet. Now, Nahum... His name means compassionate. So it could also be that this town was given the name of, uh, of uh, the village of Nahum, the village of compassion. It may have been that they were given that name because it was a caring disposition among the people or something like that. Just a little tidbit to throw out there. Now, Jesus is going to settle in Capernaum. Notice what Matthew, when Matthew said this happens. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 12 of Matthew, it's after John the Baptist is arrested. Upon John's arrest, Jesus relocates to Capernaum and sets that up his home. It's almost like after John's arrest, now he needs to get serious about his preaching and his ministry um, from this point forward. And he needed, he needed a home base to work out of. In um, Mark chapter one verse fourteen agrees with Matthew on that timetable of of, of Jesus going to Capernaum after John's arrest. Um, so, um, John's imprisonment ultimately provides kind of the occasion for Jesus to um, withdraw to Galilee and to ministry in Galilee. So now, this may seem like a really insignificant. Jesus set up shop in this particular town. But I choose to talk about it for just a little bit because I'm fascinated at the fact that this is fulfillment of prophecy. Did you notice that in our reading from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12? That his selection and relocation to Capernaum is part of Old Testament prophecy. So if Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It, and it, here's what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made, glor- made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. And so the phrase in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, the phrase, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and the, uh, it's a little, it's quoted in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 15, and it describes Galilee in particular the region of Galilee that, that um, Capernaum is located in, it describes that region from the perspective of an Assyrian invader as he enters from the west side of the sea and crosses towards the Mediterranean. Because you have to remember, Isaiah's prophecy predicted the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so... As Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 is describing this land, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There is this prophecy connecting Jesus' residence with Galilee in particular. And uh, just as Assyria in, is invading the northern kingdom of Israel through the, uh, in the context of the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah, It's interesting that the coming of Jesus marks an invasion of darkness by light. He is the light of the world, he says in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. There is an invasion, in a sense, in what Jesus is doing uh, that connects with that prophecy. And it's very interesting that the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 says, that connects with Galilee in particular, and then Capernaum more specifically, it precedes verses 6 and 7 of the same chapter, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7, which is one of the most well-known messianic prophecies uh, in Scripture. It's Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7 that indicates that the the dawning light is focused on the the birth of a divine child, as one author said. The point is, I've mentioned the significance of Capernaum in Galilee. Because Matthew connected it with the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Such a little detail. The location of Jesus' base of operation is prophesied. So many prophecies in the Old Testament are of much more significant things. Much more um, prominent features of Jesus' life are prophesied. Mingu uh, spent all Sunday night on, on one psalm, Psalm 22, and, and, and made the connection at the end of, uh, of, of the study that night that this psalm is talking uh, in part about Jesus' own death, about, about Jesus on the cross. And Jesus himself quoted Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1 from the cross. That's a prophecy that connects to something big in the life of Jesus. But then we have this little prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 connecting to the place that Jesus is going to operate from during his ministry. So Capernaum is, is interesting because it was prophesied. Now here on the screen I have placed a map of the Galilee region, the, the uh, oval-shaped Blue mass in the middle of the screen is the Sea of Galilee. You'll notice to the to the left, <laughs> to the left, I've I've located Nazareth for you, and then just on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, on the northern northwestern coast, is the city of Capernaum. It's very very significant also that Jesus chose to operate out of Capernaum because it is on the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a very strategic location. For him to be able to spread his message, his good news. Because Capernaum being situated on the Sea of Galilee gave access to all these territories and all these towns that were around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee became his interstate system. He could cross the Sea of Galilee much faster than he could walk from one town to another. And so Uh, It's interesting that around the Sea of Galilee's shores were several of the major population centers in this area. Uh, Aligning its banks were nine populous cities. So Capernaum is, as one author said, a busy lakeside town, and it ensured a wider audience for Jesus' teaching than Nazareth did. It's also important to note that there were some some major ancient roads that converged at Capernaum. Uh, this particular city enjoyed the major trade route that ran from Syria in the, that was west of here, north and west of, of this region. A major trade route from Syria to Egypt, and that, what, that route was called the Way of the Sea, which is a phrase that was pulled or that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. So you have this town that is situated on this body of water that made access to all the other populated towns of the region really easy. And there is a major trade route running from one great nation to another right through the city. And Capernaum was also in, in one of the more densely populated parts of Palestine because the Jewish historian Josephus Uh, wrote that there were 240 villages and towns in this area, none of which had a population of less than 15,000. Now I know. We live in the Atlanta metropolitan area. 15,000 does not sound that significant. But let's go back to first century AD when you don't have airports and you don't have cars and you don't have uh, technology like we do today, and to have villages and towns, 240 of them that have populations in that kind of range. Maybe Josephus was being a little. Um, maybe he had a preacher count going on, I don't know. But 240 towns with a population, of, uh, with, which had a population of none of which had a population of less than 15,000. That's significant. But it also helps us understand how Jesus could have in Galilee a mass of 5,000 people, just men, following him for days on end when you've got that kind of a population in the region. But Capernaum becomes this uh, significant strategic location for him to be able to access these places. Let me skip ahead to this slide as well. Here's a, just a, a, draw, a drawing of the Sea of Galilee, obviously laid down on, the, on its side a little bit. But you can see, I don't know how well you can read it, but it shows the significant towns located around the Sea of Galilee. And, oh, let me get my pointer. For instance, right here is the town of Tiberias. That was the capital city of, for Herod Antipas, who reigned in this region. So, Jesus, we don't have... Um, information in the text of Scripture saying, hey, Jesus went to Tiberias, but that's a significant town, just a boat ride away for Jesus, because it's, it's a royal town. It's a place where the ruler of that region lived. And so that's, that's very important to notice. The other thing about Capernaum that's worth mentioning is that it foreshadowed, and I use the word universality, but I kind of wish I changed it to the multi- cultural I couldn't think of a better word, multicultural um, depiction of the church. Because the phrase in that Isaiah 9-1 prophecy, the phrase Galilee of the Gentiles, and Galilee, of the, which is repeated in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 15, is an appropriate description for Capernaum. Because it had, it had been a, a predominantly Gentile population until a deliberate Judaizing policy was adopted by the Hasmonean rulers that mixed the population. So there's a lot, we think, oh, Galilee is in Palestine. Galilee must have been a, 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 just a Jewish area, and only Jewish people lived there. But here's what's interesting, when you start reading about the people Jesus will interact with throughout the, his time in Capernaum, He's going to recruit a Jewish person named Matthew to be a um, a disciple of his. But what was his occupation? He's a tax collector for who? For the Jews? No. For Rome. He's got an occupation that's benefiting a Gentile um, ruler. But he's also going to encounter a Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 and through 9. Uh, He's going to uh, encounter um, a high officer of Herod Antipas in John chapter 4 and verse 46. So we're talking about a region where Jesus isn't just interacting with Jewish people, even though that's his primary target, and even though he does make statements about how he's primarily sent to the house of Israel and not to the Gentiles. But it's going to foreshadow the fact that the church is diverse. The church is going to include both Jews and Gentiles in the future. So the region of Galilee and the town of Capernaum actually had a mixed population of Jew and Gentile, kind of unlike Jerusalem. Jerusalem was really dominated by Jews. There were Gentiles there, but it was dominated by Jews. Galilee wasn't that way. And um, this is unique when you consider the fact that jesus becomes very intentional and the gospels i should say it that way the gospels are very intentional about describing the church in terms of inclusivity of all people uh, as far as everyone having access to it so I, i i like to point these things out since scripture is very specific about giving us a prophetic indication of the importance of capernaum now I've spent enough time on that, so I want to talk about the major events that transpire after Jesus arrives in Capernaum. And the first one I want to look at, I'm going to call the synagogue exorcism. Now, I'm really only looking at events that take place between the time that Jesus uh, establishes his Capernaum base here in Matthew chapter 4 and his calling of the first disciples, which we've we've already talked about. Uh, You can really read in Luke chapter 5. But the first thing I notice is the synagogue exorcism. Let's read that real quick. We're only going to read Mark's account. Mark and Luke are the only two that record this, but we'll just read Mark's. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. Here's what it says. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue just like he was in Nazareth. And I mentioned when we studied his Nazareth uh, rejection, I mentioned that um, you'd have to be invited to speak in this capacity, to, to take on the teaching function in the synagogue. And so Jesus Jesus is allowed even in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, in Nazareth, that's his hometown. They knew him. They knew his family. But here he's in Capernaum, and he's invited to speak and that indicates he's already established a reputation as a teacher. And his teaching astonishes his audience. And, and, and the statement is made that, that he teaches with authority. But in the midst of this teaching, a man with an unclean spirit shows up. Luke says a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. It's interesting to me that Mark just refers to it as an unclean spirit. Luke identifies it as an unclean demon. Luke chapter 4 and verse 33. So it seems to be in the context of Jesus' ministry, at least, that the presence of an unclean spirit is a reference to some sort of demon possession, based on the fact that Luke would use the phrase unclean demon, while Mark used the phrase unclean spirit. And how did the unclean spirit react to Jesus? I find it fascinating when you read through the gospel accounts at all the times Jesus encountered an unclean spirit, a demon, whatever it is. They react to him very specifically. The demon here, as in other cases, recognized Jesus and said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's fascinating to me how when you read these accounts of Jesus's encounter with, with demons and unclean spirits, they're so quick to identify him. They're so quick to acknowledge who he is. Us humans are so much slower at it. And it just goes to show that even the demons recognize his authority. They know who he is. Oh, I think there's a verse about that, isn't there? Even the demons believe in what? Shudder. And so here we have one. We have this, this demon who's immediately recognizing Jesus, and it's also a case where the demon uh, speaks in plural language, which is also fascinating, but I'm not going to dive too much into that. Uh, there are other occasions that demons recognize and acknowledge Jesus. Mark has a generic statement in chapter 3 and verse 11, that whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In Mark chapter 5 and verse 7, we read about Legion, who said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the high. And then it's James chapter 2 and verse 19 that says the demons believe and shudder. But it, it's fascinating that this spirit recognizes and acknowledges who Jesus is. But what does Jesus do immediately? He immediately silenced the demon. Does that not seem surprising to some degree? This entity is identifying Jesus correctly but Jesus is silencing him. Why do you think Jesus is so quick to silence the demon even though the demon is speaking truth about him? Wasn't time? What do you mean? Ah, oh, wasn't time for the knowledge that knowledge to be out? might have turned people against him sooner. That's a great observation. What, anybody else want to expound on, on why Jesus is quick to silence this entity that is correctly identifying him? That a now, that's a great point. He didn't want the demon as a reference for him. He wanted his miracles to do the speaking for him. Has there ever been somebody you really didn't want other people to ask for information about you? Like, is there somebody in your life that you would never stick on your resume? You just don't want that person to be the one giving a reference for you to somebody else. I've got a feeling that's me on Ben Hogan's resume. Jesus doesn't want the enemy as a reference, even though the enemy can speak truth about him. Remember, there's going to come an occasion where Jesus is going to be accused of of being in cooperation with the devil. And he's going to argue that, hey, the reason that, here's the evidence that I'm not working with Satan, I'm casting out his demons that's that's evidence that the kingdom of God has come not that the kingdom of Satan is rising so you don't want him as a reference and 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 uh, as Billy was saying you ha- if you if if these are the people or the entities that are, are serving as his reference for his identity it's just going to turn people against him because they're not reliable references so, Jesus is silencing this demon because it's not a good, um, a, 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 a good identifier for him. He needs his miracles to serve as the evidence of his identity. And he needs people who come to faith in him to be the ones uh, who are identifying him, not this demon. And what Jesus ultimately does is he exercises this demon not ex-er, ex sizes, this demon. And Jesus will do this on a number of occasions. His casting out of demons becomes one of the hallmarks of his early ministry in particular. And these exorcisms, as I kind of alluded to already, they, didn't, they kind of denote, as one author says, the breaking down of the reign of Satan and the establishment of the reign of God. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 that's the occasion where Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan and his response to that accusation is simply that if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan then that's a house divided against itself it's going to fall but if I'm casting out demons by the power of God then that's evidence that the kingdom of God has arrived and so This is the start of evidence for people to be able to see that God's kingdom is entering this realm. Now, what was the result of this ultimate first miracle in Capernaum, to our knowledge at least? The first result of this miracle was that it amazed the audience to the degree that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. That was their immediate response to what happened. The people who heard Jesus' teaching were astonished at his teaching because of its authority, both in the fact that he did not appeal to rabbinic predecessors and because his teaching was accompanied by the ability to command demons. However, their astonishment and amazement did not necessarily result in their belief. At this point, no statement is made regarding whether or not those who witnessed this miracle ever ascertained his identity. Interestingly, the demon was able to reach that conclusion, but the Jews could not. And the second big result of this miracle is that at at once, Mark 1 verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This uh, spread of fame led to what we're going to look at in just a minute, the, the sunset healings um, wherein the whole city of Capernaum brings out their disease, they're sick, they're injured. The whole city, we're, said, bring, we're told, brings out people to, see, to meet Jesus, to be healed by Jesus. He's going into the night doing mass healings Because his fame has spread so quickly. So, the the first significant event in Capernaum is this synagogue exorcism. The second big event is what I call the mother in law healing. This is Peter's mother in law. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, Mark chapter 1, verse 29 through 31, and Luke chapter 4, verse 38 and 39. It's just a two verse healing. Here it is in Mark's account. And immediately he left the synagogue. We were just at the synagogue where he cast out this unclean spirit. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother in law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Peter's mother in law has a fever. Jesus goes into Peter's house, and he heals her very quickly. Now, the fact that she's lying sick with a fever, or has a high fever, depending on, Matthew 8 says lying sick with a fever, Luke 4 says has a high fever, the nature of her illness is not specified. We just know that there's a fever involved. But that alone could be a significant illness. We'll see that other fever situations are healed. Jesus heals the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, verse 52 from a fever. And I believe it's uh, Paul who heals uh, Publius' father in Acts chapter 28, and verse 8, when he was on... Uh, his in route to uh, Rome, Publius was a, a, a royal figure of some sort in Acts 28, and, and uh, so we see other healings of fevers in Scripture. So it seems so insignificant. We, you know, for us, for us, when somebody gets a fever, we're like, break out the Tylenol. We'll be okay tomorrow. But in this day and age, it's a pretty, it could be an indicator of something much more significant. Or it could just be the thing that um, takes your life. Here's what I find significant, four things really, about this particular healing. I think the way Jesus healed in this particular account is significant. Now remember, we haven't, at this point, if you hadn't read the rest of the Gospels, if you didn't know the life of Jesus, and just reading the, this for the first time, in chronological order, you need to remember that Jesus here, he touches Peter's mother-in-law in in order to heal her. And touching women in this fashion was unacceptable according to Jewish traditions of the day. So Jesus does something here to bring about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law that was culturally taboo. It's also worth noting that this is The only account in Luke where Jesus addressed his healing words to the disease rather than the person. So if you go over to Luke chapter 4, this is kind of interesting. And look at verse 35, I believe it is. Luke chapter 4, well, actually 35 is him speaking to the demon, so it's verse 41. We're told in verse 41 Oh, wait, I'm, looking, I'm still working on the, looking at the wrong verses here. I'm looking at how he addressed the demon. and wouldn't let the demon talk. Looking, looking at Luke chapter 4, uh, and it's verse 38 and 39. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. I referenced verse 35 and 41 of, uh, of Luke chapter 4 because that's what he did to demons. He rebuked the demons. He spoke to the demons. It's as if he's speaking to the illness here, which is just a fascinating little detail that Luke, um, Luke the physician adds. So the way Jesus healed is unique and significant with Peter's mother-in-law because uh, from a chronological perspective, it's the first time he, he touches to heal. In particular, he's touching a woman, which is culturally taboo, and he speaks to the disease as if he's speaking to a demon. Just some interesting little pieces of information about this healing. Another thing I find significant is who Jesus healed, the individual he healed. It should not be overlooked that it is a woman. And by including accounts of the healing of women as well as men, our gospel writers imply that Jesus was concerned about all people, It's interesting because we're going to encounter times where we only hear about men. When we read about the feeding of the 5,000, we're specifically told, well, that's just the number of men that were there. They didn't even take the time to count the women, which could have outnumbered the men, potentially could have outnumbered the men. But we have these gospel writers who are making sure we, we receive this information that Jesus Jesus isn't picky about who he showed mercy to and who he healed, and in, the, in one of his very first healings, his first medical addresses with mir- a medically addressed miracle, is to a woman, not to a man. And then another thing that's significant is that who the people who witness this are significant. According to Mark, Peter and Andrew this healing as it took place in their home, but Mark also indicates that James and John uh, were present too. And according to Luke, this healing took place prior to the call to discipleship of these four fishermen. And so their witnessing of this healing could have prepared them to leave everything and follow Jesus when that time came. I also think it's significant uh, the length of this healing account. This is the shortest miracle story in the Gospels. But it succinctly demonstrates the healing power of Jesus because the fact that the fever left her and she began to serve them suggests that this healing was quick and complete. Did you notice that? As soon as Jesus... Raises her up. She becomes hostess. As soon as Jesus rebukes the fever, she starts working. The immediacy of the healing. There's not a. There's not need for recovery time, is my point. There's not, there's not need for, hey, the fever's gone. You need to rest a while and recover your strength. That's how complete Jesus' healing is was. When we deal with illness, we can recover with the aid of medicine or with the aid of our own uh, antibodies working against the illness or, or, or whatever it is, but we often need some time to rebuild strength or, or to uh, uh, recover in some fashion from the illness, the disease, the injury, whatever it is. This is instantaneous. This is what every doctor wishes they could do. This should astound us when we really start looking at the healing miracles of Jesus and start thinking about how quickly the healing works. It will even get more fascinating when you start looking at methods that Jesus used to heal. He's going to heal by word only. He's going to heal by touching. He's going to heal in the, pres- in the room with somebody there. He's going to heal miles away from somebody. Jesus' power to heal is amazing. Particularly now that we live in an age where we understand the human body better than ever and we understand what it takes to cure illness, what it takes to get people well, what it takes to overcome injuries and disabilities and deformities. And it happened immediately. And then right after this, we go into what I'm going to refer, as, refer to as the sunset healings. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 32, 33, and 34. After Jesus has cast out a demon in the synagogue, he goes into Peter's house, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then we immediately transition into this. It's all one day, one continuous strand of thought. That's why I've only used Mark's account. Mark 1, verse 32 through 34, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now this, as the text tells us, happened at sundown. And you do need to remember that the Jewish day began at sundown and lasted until the following sundown. Our day begins at Midnight and lasts until 11: 59 p.m. Theirs began at sundown and lasted till the next sundown. And you need to understand the significance.. Hold on. There's a, a note in my notes that I did not remember. And so I'm having to make sure before I say it that I'm not saying something silly. Because it could be significant or it could be horribly wrong. Ah. Yeah. Look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 21 again. Look back at verse 21. I had to find my reference point for this to work. What day of the week did this whole series of events start on? Sabbath. Jesus is going to do so many of his healings on the Sabbath day. On the day that you're not supposed to do any work. Here he is on the Sabbath day and he's healing Peter's mother-in-law. He's casting out a demon on the day that you're forbidden to do any work. But what constituted work? The rabbis made 39 prohibitions against labor on the Sabbath in their writings. The last of these was against one who transports an object from one domain to another. You are not allowed to transport an object from one domain to another. That's a quote from Mishnah Shabbat 7.2. So the fact that these sick and demon-oppressed individuals were brought to Jesus may be an indicator that the vast majority of these individuals needed assistance in being transported. And as a result, many Jews were likely fearful to bring their sick ones to Jesus before the Sabbath had ended. They waited till sundown so they would start the next day. And then there's a mad rush to Jesus to bring everyone they could out there, to be healed by him, but not break the Sabbath law. It's also interesting that we have both sickness and demon possession mentioned as those who came to Jesus. They're, those are the categories that are identified among these masses that brought out, were brought out to Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16 indicates that demons were cast out with a word. Luke chapter 4 and verse 40 indicates that diseases were healed when he laid his hands on them. Like there's a different process involved, but yet when he dealt with that fever in Peter's mother-in-law, it was the same process. It's interesting, sickness and demon possession almost go hand-in-hand at times in Scripture gonna have demons that possess somebody and cause them to be blind and mute or deaf and mute I should say you're gonna have demons that possess people and give them uh, uh, epilepsy basically you're gonna have demons that cause medical conditions as well so often you'll see these go hand in hand and that's the case on this this evening as people are being brought out doesn't matter what uh, condition they had they just brought them brought them to Jesus and then Matt, Matthew, in his account of these sunset healings, he actually has a quote from the Old Testament. Matthew loves to connect us to the Old Testament. It's Matthew chapter 8. At least, nope, I'm wrong about that. It's in Matthew chapter 4. Just before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. You'll read this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. I'm afraid I read the the wrong text. I hate when I do that. All right, I'm going to skip that part. Yeah, my notes are jumbled in this section. That's why I'm having so much trouble. This this is one of those few occasions, there's a handful of these, where we're told that Jesus healed in mass, if you will, where we're just given this generic uh, narrative of Jesus healing multiple people. In this occasion, it's going to happen at sunset. We will have other occasions Uh, mentioned in the text but we probably won't spend any time on them. I started here because I wanted you to see uh, the significance of Capernaum in relation to Nazareth which rejected him and I wanted you to see how here in Capernaum in one single day he establishes his reputation as a healer. The guy that cast out a demon in the synagogue, the guy that cured a fever of Peter's mother-in-law, a guy who probably in that moment secured his initial four disciples permanently, and then the guy who's healing people at sundown. Now, I want you to think, that's a pretty long day for Jesus. It's very interesting, because the next thing we're going to read in in Mark's account is that Jesus is going to get up very early the next morning, very early to go out and pray, Jesus had to be exhausted. But this is just a normal day in the life of Jesus. A day he spends every minute interacting with people, teaching like he did in the synagogue, healing diseases, casting out demons. And he didn't turn anybody away, as far as we know. And the next morning he woke up before the sun came up Just so he could go spend some time with his father. And then people come looking for him, and he says, Ah, it's time for us to go to some more towns. Capernaum may be his home base, but Capernaum doesn't have all the people in the world that need to hear the good news. And so he said, I'm in Luke, according to Luke's account, chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus always had his purpose in focus. So we start here in this new quarter, understanding to some degree why Jesus moved to Capernaum, hopefully, and seeing how his ministry of teaching and healing ultimately began right here in this town. And from here, it's going to be non-stop activity for Jesus until his death. Next week, as we continue our study of his life, we'll start focusing in on individual uh, miracles in particular, um, as that becomes the, the focus of his ministry early on. And from here on out, we'll just be studying uh, the, these individual events in his life as we lead ourselves up to spring quarter which will start in March and then we'll start looking primarily towards the last week of his life. So I hope you will continue to stay with me and enjoy this study and hopefully uh, there will be at least little nuggets of benefit to you throughout each class. Are there any questions or comments or observations that you or debates, arguments, you know anything that you want to mention before we wrap up tonight? Miss Emily, that he's married. Yes, it is. And this isn't the only time that gets that gets mentioned. Uh, Let me there in one of Paul's epistles that gets mentioned as well, but I can't remember which one exactly at this time. Most of well. There is never a command about that in Scripture whatsoever. Paul makes a recommendation that if you can remain single like he did, it's a great thing. But it's a gift. That's the language he'll, he'll, he'll that's the language that gets associated with it. Is it being something that some people are blessed with the ability to do? Some people aren't. Because Paul will speak about if you can't control yourself, then you get married. That where Peter's wife has alluded to. Yes. I've always wondered, did Peter have kids? I would love to know. That. And say what? Yeah, so he had, well, so he had kids. That's a great point. In order for him to be an elder, and uh, as he mentions in 1 Peter chapter 5, he would have to have children. I wonder what life was like for them. That would just be interesting to know. Anything else? All right, let's close out with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another evening that we could be here to study your word. We ask for your blessings on us as we continue studying your son's life this quarter. Um, May we we be able to glean from it uh, new information. May we be able to see him in a new light. May we be able to understand uh, what life was like for him. And may we appreciate it all the more because he came here for us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for sending him. We thank you for your, uh, the sacrifice that was made so that we can spend eternity with you and help us to never take that for granted. Lord, we love you. And it's through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.